Book One, Chapter Ten of Marcella. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. Marcella by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Book One, Chapter Ten. Won't you sit nearer to the window? We are rather proud of our view at this time of year," said Miss Raeburn to Marcella, taking her visitor's jacket from her as she spoke and laying it aside. "'Lady Winterbourne is late, but she will come, I am sure. She is very precise about engagements.' Marcella moved her chair nearer to the great bow window, and looked out over the sloping gardens of the court, and the autumn splendour of the woods girdling them in on all sides. She held her head nervously erect, was not apparently much inclined to talk, and Miss Raeburn, who had resumed her knitting within a few paces of her guest, said to herself presently, after a few minutes' conversation on the weather and the walk from Mellor, difficult decidedly difficult and too much manner for a young girl but the most picturesque creature i ever set eyes on lord maxwell's sister was an excellent woman the inquisitive benevolent despot of all the maxwell villages and one of the soundest tories still left to a degenerate party and a changing time her brother and her great-nephew represented to her the flower of humankind she had never been capable, and probably never would be capable, of quarrelling with either of them on any subject whatever. At the same time she had her rights with them. She was at any rate their natural guardian in those matters relating to womankind where men are confessedly given to folly. She had accordingly kept a shrewd eye, in Aldous's interest, on all the young ladies of the neighbourhood for many years past, knew perfectly well all that he might have done, and sighed over all that he had so far left undone. At the present moment, in spite of the even good breeding with which she knitted and chattered beside Marcella, she was in truth consumed with curiosity, conjecture, and alarm on the subject of this Miss Boyce. Profoundly as they trusted each other, the Rayburns were not on the surface a communicative family. Neither her brother nor Aldous had so far bestowed any direct confidence upon her but the course of affairs had notwithstanding aroused her very keenest attention in the first place as we know the mistress of maxwell court had left mellor and its new occupants unvisited she had plainly understood it to be her brother's wish that she should do so how indeed could you know the women without knowing richard boyce which according to lord maxwell was impossible and now it was lord maxwell who had suggested not only that after all it would be kind to call upon the poor things who were heavily weighted enough already with dick boyce for husband and father but that it would be a graceful act on his sister's part to ask the girl and her mother to luncheon dick boyce of course must be made to keep his distance but the resources of civilization were perhaps not unequal to the task of discriminating if it were prudently set about at any rate, Miss Rayburn gathered that she was expected to try, and instead of pressing her brother for explanations, she held her tongue, paid her call forthwith, and wrote her note. But although Aldous, thinking no doubt that he had been already sufficiently premature, had said nothing at all as to his own feelings to his great-aunt, she knew perfectly well that he had said a great deal on the subject of Miss Boyce and her mother to Lady Winterbourne the only woman in the neighbourhood with whom he was ever really confidential. 
No woman, of course, in Miss Rayburn's position, and with Miss Rayburn's general interest in her kind, could have been ignorant for any appreciable number of days after the Boyce's arrival at Mellor that they possessed a handsome daughter, of whom the Hardens in particular gave striking but, as Miss Rayburn privately thought, by no means wholly attractive accounts. And now, after all these somewhat agitating preliminaries, here was the girl, established in the court drawing-room, oldest, more nervous and preoccupied than she had ever seen him, and Lord Maxwell expressing a particular anxiety to return from his board-meeting in good time for luncheon, to which he had especially desired that Lady Winterbourne should be bidden, and no one else. It may well be supposed that Miss Rayburn was on the alert. As for Marcella, she was on her side keenly conscious of being observed, of having her way to make. Here she was, alone among these formidable people, whose acquaintance she had in a manner compelled. Well, what blame? What was to prevent her from doing the same thing again to-morrow? Her conscience was absolutely clear. If they were not ready to meet her, in the same spirit in which, through Mr. Rayburn, she had approached them, she would know perfectly well how to protect herself, above all, how to live out her life in the future without troubling them. Meanwhile, in spite of her dignity and those inward propitiations it from time to time demanded, she was, in her human vivid way, full of an excitement and curiosity she could hardly conceal as perfectly as she desired, curiosity as to the great house and the life in it, especially as to Aldous Rayburn's part therein. She knew very little indeed of the class to which by birth she belonged. Great houses and great people were strange to her. She brought her artists' and students' eyes to look at them with. She was determined not to be dazzled or taken in by them. At the same time, as she glanced every now and then round the splendid room in which they sat, with its Tudor ceiling, its fine pictures, its combination of every luxury with every refinement, she was distinctly conscious of a certain thrill, a romantic drawing towards the stateliness and power which it all implied, together with a proud and careless sense of equality, of kinship, so to speak, which she made light of, but would not in reality have been without for the world. In birth and blood she had nothing to yield to the Rayburns, so her mother assured her. If things were to be vulgarly measured, this fact too must come in. But they should not be vulgarly measured. She did not believe in class or wealth, not at all. Only, as her mother had told her, she must hold her head up. An inward temper, which no doubt led to that excess of manner of which Miss Rayburn was meanwhile conscious. Where were the gentlemen? Marcella was beginning to resent and tire of the innumerable questions as to her likes and dislikes, her accomplishments, her friends, her opinions of Mellor and the neighbourhood, which this knitting lady beside her poured out upon her so briskly, when to her great relief the door opened and a footman announced, Lady Winterbourne. A very tall, thin lady in black entered the room at the words. "'My dear,' she said to Miss Rayburn, "'I am very late, but the roads are abominable.' and those horses Edward has just given me have to be taken such tiresome care of. I told the coachman next time he might wrap them in shawls and put them to bed, and I should walk. "'You are quite capable of it, my dear,' said Miss Rayburn, kissing her. "'We know you. Miss Boyce, Lady Winterbourne.' Lady Winterbourne shook hands with a shy awkwardness which belied her height and stateliness. 
as she sat down beside Miss Rayburn, the contrast between her and Lord Maxwell's sister was sufficiently striking. Miss Rayburn was short, inclined to be stout, and to a certain gay profusion in her attire. Her cap was made of a bright silk handkerchief edged with lace. Round her neck were hung a number of small trinkets on various gold chains. She abounded, too, in bracelets, most of which were clearly old-fashioned mementos of departed relatives or friends. Her dress was a cheerful red verging on crimson, and her general air suggested energy, bustle, and a good-humoured common sense. Lady Winterbourne, on the other hand, was not only dressed from head to foot in severe black, without an ornament, her head and face belonged also to the same impression, as of some strong and forcible study in black and white. The attitude was rigidly erect. The very dark eyes, under the snowy and abundant hair, had a trick of absent staring. In certain aspects the whole figure had a tragic, nay formidable dignity, from which one expected, and sometimes got, the tone and gesture of tragic acting. Yet at the same time, mixed in therewith, a curious strain of womanish, nay childish weakness, appealingness. Altogether a great lady, and a personality, yet something else too, something ill-assured, timid, incongruous, hard to be defined. "'I believe you have not been at Mellor long,' the newcomer asked, in a deep contralto voice which she dragged a little. "'About seven weeks. My father and mother have been there since May. You must, of course, think it a very interesting old place.' "'Of course I do. I love it,' said Marcella disconcerted by the odd habit Lady Winterbourne had of fixing her eyes upon a person, and then, as it were, forgetting what she had done with them. "'Oh, I haven't been there, Agneta,' said the newcomer, turning after a pause to Miss Rayburn. "'Since that summer. You remember that party when the Palmerstons came over. So long ago. Twenty years.' Marcella sat stiffly upright. Lady Winterbourne grew a little nervous and flurried. "'I don't think I ever saw your mother, Miss Boyce. I was much away from home about then.' "'Oh, yes, I did once.' The speaker stopped, a sudden red suffusing her pale cheeks. She had felt certain, somehow, at sight of Marcella, that she should say or do something untoward, and she had promptly justified her own prevision. The only time she had ever seen Mrs. Boyce had been in court, on the last day of the famous trial in which Richard Boyce was concerned, when she had made out the wife sitting closely veiled as near to her husband as possible, waiting for the verdict.' As she had already confided this reminiscence to Miss Rayburn, and had forgotten she had done so, both ladies had a moment of embarrassment. "'Mrs. Boyce, I am sorry to say, does not seem to be strong,' said Miss Rayburn, bending over the heel of her stocking. "'I wish we could have had the pleasure of seeing her to-day.' There was a pause. Lady Winterbourne's tragic eyes were once more considering Marcella. "'I hope you will come and see me,' she said at last, abruptly, "'and Mrs. Boyce, too.' The voice was very soft and refined, though so deep, and Marcella, looking up, was suddenly magnetised. "'Yes, I will,' she said, all her face melting into sensitive life. "'Mamma won't go anywhere, but I will come, if you will ask me.' "'Will you come next Tuesday?' said Lady Winterbourne quickly. "'Come to tea, and I will drive you back. Mr. Rayburn told me about you. He says you read a great deal.' The solemnity of the last words, the fixedness of the tragic look, were not to be resisted. Marcella laughed out, and both ladies simultaneously thought her extraordinarily radiant and handsome. "'How can he know? Why, I have hardly talked about books to him at all.' "'Well, here he comes,' said Lady Winterbourne, smiling suddenly, "'so I can ask him. But I am sure he did say so.' 
It was now Marcella's turn to colour. Aldous Rayburn crossed the room, greeted Lady Winterbourne, and next moment she felt her hand in his. "'You did tell me, Aldous, didn't you?' said Lady Winterbourne. "'That Miss Boyce was a great reader.' The speaker had known Aldous Rayburn as a boy, and was, moreover, a sort of cousin, which explained the Christian name. Aldous smiled. "'I said I thought Miss Boyce was like you and me, and had a weakness that way, Lady Winterbourne. But I won't be cross-examined.' "'I don't think I am a great reader,' said Marcella bluntly. "'At least I read a great deal, but I hardly ever read a book through. I haven't patience.' "'You want to get at everything so quickly,' said Miss Rayburn, looking up sharply. "'I suppose so,' said Marcella. "'There seems to be always a hundred things tearing one different ways, and no time for any of them.' "'Yes, when one is young one feels like that,' said Lady Winterbourne, sighing. "'When one is old one accepts one's limitations.' "'When I was twenty, I never thought that I should still be an ignorant and discontented woman at nearly seventy. "'It is because you are so young still, Lady Winterbourne, that you feel so,' said Aldous, laughing at her, "'as one does at an old friend. "'Why, you are younger than any of us. "'I feel all brushed and stirred up, a boy at school again, after I have been to see you.' "'Well, I don't know what you mean, I'm sure,' said Lady Winterbourne, sighing again. "'Then she looked at the pair beside her at the alert brightness in the man's strong and quiet face as he sat stooping forward, with his hands upon his knees, hardly able to keep his eyes for an instant from the dark apparition beside him, at the girl's evident shyness and pride. "'My dear,' she said, turning suddenly to Miss Rayburn, "'have you heard what a monstrosity Alice has produced this time in the way of a baby? It was born with four teeth!' Miss Rayburn's astonishment fitted the provocation and the two old friends fell into a gossip on the subject of Lady Winterbourne's numerous family, which was clearly meant for a tete-a-tete. -tete. "'Will you come and look at our tapestry?' said Aldous to his neighbour, after a few nothings had passed between them as to the weather and her walk from Mellor. "'I think you would admire it, and I am afraid my grandfather will be a few minutes yet. He hoped to get home earlier than this, but his board-meeting was very long and important, and has kept him an unconscionable time.' Marcella rose, and they moved together towards the south end of the room, where a famous piece of Italian Renaissance tapestry entirely filled the wall from side to side. "'How beautiful!' cried the girl, her eyes filling with delight. "'What a delicious thing to live with!' And, indeed, it was the most adorable medley of forms, tints, suggestions, of gods and goddesses, nymphs and shepherds, standing in flowery grass under fruit-laden trees, and wreathed about with roses." both colour and subject were of fairyland the golds and browns and pinks of it the greens and ivory whites had been mellowed and pearled and warmed by age into a most glowing delicate and fanciful beauty it was italy at the great moment subtle rich exuberant aldous enjoyed her pleasure i thought you would like it i hoped you would it has been my special delight since i was a child when my mother first routed it out of a garret i am not sure that i don't in my heart prefer it to any of the pictures the flowers said marcella absorbed in it look at them the irises the cyclamens the lilies it reminds one of the dreams one used to have when one was small of what it would be like to have flowers enough i was at school you know in a part of england where one seemed always cheated out of them we walked two and two along the straight roads and i found one here and one there but such a beggarly wretched few for all one's trouble I used to hate the hard, dry soil, and console myself by imagining countries where the flowers grew like this, yes, just like this, in a golden pink and blue mass, 
so that one might thrust one's hands in and gather and gather till one was really satisfied. That is the worst of being at school when you are poor. You never get enough of anything. One day it's flowers, but the next day it is pudding, and the next frocks. Her eye was sparkling, her tongue loosened. Not only was it pleasant to feel herself beside him, enwrapped in such an atmosphere of admiration and deference, but the artistic sensitive chord in her had been struck, and vibrated happily. "'Well, only wait till May, and the cowslips in your own fields will make up to you,' he said, smiling at her. "'But now I have been wondering to myself in my room upstairs what you would like to see. There are a good many treasures in this house, and you will care for them, because you are an artist. But you shall not be bored with them. You shall see what and as much as you like.' "'You had about a quarter of an hour's talk with my aunt, did you not?' he asked, in a quite different tone. So all the time while she and Miss Raeburn had been making acquaintance, he had known that she was in the house, and he had kept away for his own purposes. Marcella felt a colour she could not restrain leap into her cheek. "'Miss Raeburn was very kind,' she said, with a return of shyness, which passed, however, the next moment by reaction into her usual daring. "'Yes, she was very kind.' "'But all the same she doesn't like me. "'I don't think she is going to like me. "'I am not her sort.' "'Have you been talking socialism to her?' "'He asked her, smiling. "'No, not yet. "'Not yet,' she said emphatically. "'But I am dreadfully uncertain. "'I can't always hold my tongue. "'I am afraid you will be sorry you took me up. "'Are you so aggressive? "'But Aunt Nita is so mild. "'She wouldn't hurt a fly. "'She mothers everyone in the house and out of it. The only people she is hard upon are the little servant-girls, who will wear feathers in their hats. "'There!' cried Marcella indignantly. "'Why shouldn't they wear feathers in their hats? It is their form of beauty, their tapestry.' "'But if one can't have both feathers and boots?' he asked her humbly, a twinkle in his grey eye. "'If one hasn't boots, one may catch a cold and die of it, which is, after all, worse than going featherless. "'But why can't they have feathers and boots?' It is because you, we, have got too much. You have the tapestry, and, and the pictures, she turned and looked round the room, and this wonderful house, and the park. Oh, no, I think it is Miss Raeburn has too many feathers. Perhaps it is, he admitted, in a different tone, his look changing and saddening, as though some habitual struggle of thought were recalled to him. You see, I am in a difficulty. I want to show you our feathers. I think they would please you, and you make me ashamed of them. "'How absurd!' cried Marcella. "'When I told you how I liked the school-children bobbing to me.' They laughed, and then Aldous looked round with a start. "'Ah, here is my grandfather.' Then he stood back, watching the look with which Lord Maxwell, after greeting Lady Winterbourne, approached Miss Boyce. He saw the old man's somewhat formal approach, the sudden kindle in the blue eyes which marked the first effect of Marcella's form and presence, the bow, the stately shake of the hand. The lover, hearing his own heart beat, realised that his beautiful lady had so far done well. "'You must let me say that I see a decided likeness in you to your grandfather,' said Lord Maxwell, when they were all seated at lunch, Marcella on his left hand, opposite to Lady Winterbourne. "'He was one of my dearest friends.' "'I'm afraid I don't know much about him,' said Marcella, rather bluntly, "'except what I have got out of old letters. I never saw him that I remember.' Lord Maxwell left the subject, of course, at once, but showed a great wish to talk to her, and make her talk. He had pleasant things to say about Mellor and its past, which could be said without offence, and some conversation about the Boyce monuments in Mellor Church led to a discussion of the part played by the different local families in the civil wars, 
in which it seemed to Aldous that his grandfather tried in various shrewd and courteous ways to make Marcella feel at ease with herself and her race, accepted, as it were, of right into the local brotherhood, and so to soothe and heal those bruised feelings he could not but divine. The girl carried herself a little loftily, answering with an independence and freedom beyond her age and born of her London life. She was not in the least abashed or shy, yet it was clear that Lord Maxwell's first impressions were favourable. Aldous caught every now and then his quick, judging look, sweeping over her and instantly withdrawn, comparing, as the grandson very well knew, every point and tone and gesture with some inner ideal of what a Rayburn's wife should be. How dreamlike the whole scene was to Aldous, yet how exquisitely real! The room, with its carved and gilt cedarwood panels, its van dykes, its tall windows opening on the park, the autumn sun flooding the gold and purple fruit on the table, and sparkling on the glass and silver, the figures of his aunt and Lady Winterbourne, the moving servants, and dominant of it all, interpreting it all for him anew, the dark, lithe creature beside his grandfather, so quick, sensitive extravagant so much a woman, yet to his lover's sense so utterly unlike any other woman he had ever seen. Every detail of it was charged to him with a thousand new meanings, now oppressive, now delightful. For he was passing out of the first stage of passion, in which it is almost its own satisfaction, so new and enriching is it to the whole nature, into the second stage, the stage of anxiety, incredulity, Marcella, sitting there on his own ground, after all his planning, seemed to him not nearer but further from him. She was terribly on her dignity. Where was all that girlish abandonment gone which she had shown him on that walk beside the gate? There had been a touch of it, a divine touch, before luncheon. How could he get her to herself again? Meanwhile the conversation passed to the prevailing local topic— the badness of the harvest, the low prices of everything, the consequent depression among the farmers, and stagnation in the villages. "'I don't know what is to be done for the people this winter,' said Lord Maxwell, without pauperising them, I mean. To give money is easy enough. Our grandfathers would have doled out coal and blankets, and thought no more of it. We don't get through so easily.' "'No,' said Lady Winterbourne, sighing. "'It weighs one down. Last winter was a nightmare. The tales one heard and the faces one saw.' though we seem to be always giving, and in the middle of it Edward would buy me a new set of sables. I begged him not, but he laughed at me. "'Well, my dear,' said Miss Rayburn, cheerfully, "'if nobody bought sables, there'd be other poor people up in Russia, isn't it, or Hudson's Bay, badly off. One has to think of that. Oh, you needn't talk, Aldous, I know you say it's a fallacy. I call it common sense.' She got, however, only a slight smile from Aldous, who had long ago left his great-aunt to work out her own economics. And, anyway, she saw that he was wholly absorbed from his seat beside Lady Winterbourne in watching Miss Boyce. "'It's precisely as Lord Maxwell says,' replied Lady Winterbourne. "'That kind of thing used to satisfy everybody, and our grandmothers were very good women. I don't know why we, who give ourselves so much more trouble than they did, should carry these thorns about with us while they went free.' She drew herself up, a cloud over her fine eyes. Miss Rayburn, looking round, was glad to see the servants had left the room. "'Miss Boyce thinks we are all in a very bad way, I'm sure. I have heard tales of Miss Boyce's opinions,' said Lord Maxwell, smiling at her, with an old man's indulgence, as though provoking her to talk. Her slim fingers were nervously crumbling some bread beside her, 
Her head was drooped a little. At his challenge she looked up with a start. She was perfectly conscious of him, as both the great magnet on his native heath, and as the trained man of affairs condescending to a girl's fancies. But she had made up her mind not to be afraid. "'What tales have you heard?' she asked him. "'You alarm us, you know,' he said gallantly, waving her question. "'We can't afford a prophetess to the other side just now.' Miss Rayburn drew herself up with a sharp, dry look at Miss Boyce, which escaped every one but Lady Winterbourne. "'Oh, I am not a radical,' said Marcella, half scornfully. "'We socialists don't fight for either political party as such. We take what we can get out of both.' "'So you call yourself a socialist, a real full-blown one?' Lord Maxwell's pleasant tone masked the mood of a man who, after a morning of hard work, thinks himself entitled to some amusement at luncheon. "'Yes, I am a socialist,' she said slowly, looking at him. "'At least I ought to be. I am in my conscience.' "'But not in your judgment,' he said, laughing. "'Isn't that the condition of most of us?' "'No, not at all,' she exclaimed, both her vanity and her enthusiasm roused by his manner. "'Both my judgment and my conscience make me a socialist. It's only one's wretched love for one's own little luxuries and precedences, the worst part of one, that makes me waver, makes me a traitor. The people I worked with in London would think me a traitor often, I know.' "'And you really think that the world ought to be hatched over again and hatched different? "'That it ought to be, if it could be? "'I think that things are intolerable as they are,' she broke out, after a pause. "'The London poor were bad enough. "'The country poor seem to me worse. "'How can any one believe that such serfdom and poverty, "'such mutilation of mind and body, were meant to go on for ever?' "'Lord Maxwell's brows lifted, "'but it certainly was no wonder that Aldous should find those eyes of her superb.' "'Can you really imagine, my dear young lady,' he asked her mildly, "'that if all property were divided to-morrow, "'the force of natural inequality "'would not have undone all the work the day after, "'and given us back the poor?' "'The newspaper cant of this remark, "'as the Cravens would have put it, "'brought a contemptuous look for an instant into the girl's face. "'She began to talk eagerly and cleverly, "'showing a very fair training in the catchwords of the school, "'and a good memory, as one uncomfortable person at the table soon perceived, for some of the leading arguments and illustrations of a book of venturist essays which had lately been much read and talked of in London. Then, irritated more and more by Lord Maxwell's gentle attention, and the interjections he threw in from time to time, she plunged into history, attacked the landowning class, spoke of the statute of labourers, the law of settlement, the new poor law, and other great matters, all in the same quick flow of glancing picturesque speech, and all with the same utter oblivion, so it seemed to her stiff, indignant hostess at the other end of the table, of the manners and modesty proper to a young girl in a strange house, and that young girl Richard Boyce's daughter. Aldous struck in now and then, trying to soothe her by supporting her to a certain extent, and so divert the conversation. But Marcella was soon too excited to be managed, and she had her say, a very strong say often, as far as language went, there could be no doubt of that. "'Ah, well,' said Lord Maxwell, wincing at last under some of her phrases, in spite of his courteous savoir-faire, "'I see you are of the same opinion as a good man whose book I took up yesterday. The landlords of England have always shown a mean and malignant passion for profiting by the miseries of others. Well, Aldous, my boy, we are judged, you and I. No help for it.' The man whose temper and rule had made the prosperity of a whole countryside for nearly forty years looked at his grandson with twinkling eyes. 
Miss Rayburn was speechless. Lady Winterbourne was absently staring at Marcella, a spot of red on each pale cheek. Then Marcella suddenly wavered, looked across at Aldous, and broke down. "'Of course you think me very ridiculous,' she said, with a tremulous change of tone. "'I suppose I am. And I am as inconsistent as anybody. I hate myself for it. Very often when anybody talks to me on the other side, I am almost as much persuaded as I am by the socialists. They always told me in London I was the prey of the last speaker. But it can't make any difference to one's feeling. Nothing touches that.' she turned to Lord Maxwell, half appealing. "'It is when I go down from our house to the village, when I see the places the people live in, when one is comfortable in the carriage and one passes some woman in the rain, ragged and dirty and tired, trudging back from her work, when one realises that they have no rights when they come to be old, nothing to look to but charity, for which we, who have everything, expect them to be grateful.' and when i know that every one of them has done more useful work in a year of their life than i shall ever do in the whole of mine then i feel that the whole state of things is somehow wrong and topsy-turvy and wicked her voice rose a little every emphasis grew more passionate and if i don't do something the little such a person as i can to alter it before i die i might as well never have lived everybody at the table started lord maxwell looked at miss raeburn his mouth twitching over the humour of his sister's dismay. Well, this was a forcible young woman. Was Aldous the kind of man to be able to deal conveniently with such eyes, such emotions, such a personality? Suddenly Lady Winterbourne's deep voice broke in. I never could say it half so well as that, Miss Boyce, but I agree with you. I may say that I have agreed with you all my life. The girl turned to her, grateful and quivering. "'At the same time,' said Lady Winterbourne, relapsing with a long breath from tragic emphasis into a fluttering indecision equally characteristic, "'as you say, one is inconsistent. I was poor once, before Edward came to the title, and I did not at all like it, not at all. And I don't wish my daughters to marry poor men. And what I should do without a maid or a carriage when I wanted it I cannot imagine.' Edward makes the most of these things. He tells me I have to choose between things as they are, and a graduated income tax which would leave nobody, not even the richest, more than four hundred a year. "'Just enough for one of those little houses on your station road,' said Lord Maxwell, laughing at her. "'I think you might still have a maid.' "'There, you laugh,' said Lady Winterbourne vehemently. "'The men do.' But I tell you, it is no laughing matter to feel that your heart and conscience have gone over to the enemy. You want to feel with your class, and you can't. Think of what used to happen in the old days. My grandmother, who was as good and kind a woman as ever lived, was driving home through our village one evening, and a man passed her, a labourer who was a little drunk, and who did not take off his hat to her. She stopped, made her men get down, and had him put in the stocks there and then the old stocks were still standing on the village green. Then she drove home to her dinner, and said her prayers, no doubt, that night, with more consciousness than usual, of having done her duty. But if the power of the stocks still remained to us, my dear friend, and she laid her thin old woman's hands, flashing with diamonds, on Lord Maxwell's arm, we could no longer do it, you or I. We have lost the sense of right in our place and position, at least I find I have. 
In the old days, if there was a social disturbance, the upper class could put it down with a strong hand. So they would still, said Lord Maxwell dryly, if there were violence. Once let it come to any real attack on property, and you will see where all these socialist theories will be. And, of course, it will not be we, not the landowners or the capitalists, who will put it down. It will be the hundreds and thousands of people with something to lose, a few pounds in a joint-stock mill, a house of their own built through a cooperative store, an acre or two of land stocked by their own savings. It is they, I am afraid, who will put Miss Boyce's friends down so far as they represent any real attack on property, and brutally too, I fear, if need be. I dare say, exclaimed Marcella, her colour rising again. I can never see how we socialists are to succeed. But how can any one rejoice in it? How can any one wish that the present state of things should go on? Oh, the horrors one sees in London! And down here the cottages and the starvation wages, and the ridiculous worship of game, and then, of course, the poaching! Miss Rayburn pushed back her chair with a sharp noise. But her brother was still peeling his pear, and no one else moved. Why did he let such talk go on? It was too unseemly. Lord Maxwell only laughed. "'My dear young lady,' he said, much amused, "'are you even in the frame of mind to make a hero of a poacher?' "'Disillusion lies that way. It does indeed. "'Why, Aldous, I have been hearing such tales from Westall this morning. "'I stopped at Corbett's farm a minute or two on the way home, "'and met Westall at the gate coming out. "'He says he and his men are being harried to death round about Tudley End "'by a gang of men that come, he thinks, from Oxford, "'a driving gang with a gig,' who come at night or in the early morning, the smartest rascals out, impossible to catch. But he says he thinks he will soon have his hand on the local accomplice, a meller man, a man named Hurd, not one of our labourers, I think. Hurd? cried Marcella, in dismay. Oh, no, it can't be! Impossible! Lord Maxwell looked at her in astonishment. Do you know any Hurds? I am afraid your father will find that meller is a bad place for poaching. "'If it is, it is because they are so starved and miserable,' said Marcella, trying hard to speak coolly, but excited almost beyond bounds by the conversation and all that it implied. "'And the herds, I don't believe it a bit. But if it were true, oh, they have been in such straits. They were out of work most of last winter. They are out of work now. No one could grudge them. I told you about them, didn't I?' she said, suddenly glancing at Aldous. "'I was going to ask you to-day if you could help them.' Her prophetess air had altogether left her. She felt ready to cry, and nothing could have been more womanish than her tone. He bent across to her. Miss Rayburn, invaded by a new and intolerable sense of calamity, could have beaten him for what she read in his shining eyes, and in the flush on his usually pale cheek. "'Is he still out of work?' he said. "'And you are unhappy about it. But I'm sure we can find him work.' I am just now planning improvements at the north end of the park. We can take him on, I am certain of it. You must give me his full name and address. And let him beware of Westall, said Lord Maxwell kindly. Give him a hint, Miss Boyce, and nobody will rake up bygones. There is nothing I dislike so much as rouse about the shooting. All the keepers know that. And of course, said Miss Rayburn coldly, if the family are in real distress, there are plenty of people at hand to assist them. The man need not steal. Oh, charity, cried Marcella, her lip curling. A worse crime than poaching, you think, said Lord Maxwell, laughing. Well, these are big subjects. 
I confess after my morning with the lunatics I am half inclined, like Horace Walpole, to think everything serious, ridiculous. At any rate, shall we see what light a cup of coffee throws upon it? Agneta, shall we adjourn? End of Book One, Chapter Ten